This is an ABC podcast. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and record this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Turrbal and Jagera people. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and we extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Ben Greats was born and raised in Darwin. He's a descendant of the Iwaja and Malik Malik clans in the Northern Territory and of Badu Island in the Torres Strait. Ben grew up watching his big family sing and play guitar under the mango trees in the backyard. And he's a performer too. But when Ben takes the stage, he might have transformed into Miss Alenius or Bougainvillea or even Tina Turnon, who are some of his drag identities. Ben is a drag trailblazer. And a few years ago, he founded the Miss First Nations to celebrate drag entertainers, drag queens and sister girls from Australia's First Nations. Hi, Ben. Hi, how are you? Very well. Delighted to speak with you. Ben, you you, you landed a, a place at NIDA when you were just 19 and moved to Sydney. What do you remember thinking of Sydney when you arrived? Oh gosh, it was um, it was very overwhelming. It was a you know, c- coming from Darwin, my I first moved to Perth um, before I got into NIDA for a year, and that was my first time living away from home and living in a big city, and so then moving to Sydney, it was like this explosion of um, culture of people, just the you know like how many people were there. It was like just really mind really mind blowing, and I remember moving in to a beautiful place in South Coogee with my uncle Mick Dodson and my auntie Tony and my cousin Shannon and um, I remember living with them and he had a really beautiful place in um, South Coogee and I remember feeling oh this you know I'm so lucky to be here living here and um, you know being a nighter really I thought that the world was my oyster and I I was so lucky to have that opportunity moving to Sydney and um, being at nighter but also being really afraid of of what was to come but also being afraid afraid of what well I think of um, you know it's a really difficult course and I and and I just was afraid of any, you know, even when you start school, I was always, I was always petrified at, at school. Every time I started a new year and went into a different class, I, I think I was one of those kids that cried because I, <laughs> I, I just loved, you know, you know, all my friends that I had the year before. And so everything I knew is it's all, um, everything I had known, it's all new again. And it was a bit, it had that memory to me of going, you know, to a university and not knowing anyone. What was and your first day like? I think I was out there because there were a couple of people from my class that um, I knew, I'd known from Perth. So there was, I think we'd stuck together and we were like, you know, the newbies looking around and, you know, <laughs> bright eyed and bushy tailed and um, feeling really, really excited, but also really anxious about, about what was to come. And um, this is a funny story, actually, is this, I think the second day, for some reason, I didn't get the email or the information of what to bring or what to prepare. <laughs> And so you had to like have like tap shoes, dance shoes, tights, male support, brief, um, all of these things that we needed for our movement class. The day before, they're like, okay, so you've got to bring your briefs, your um, your tights, you've got to bring all this. I was like, what are they talking about? And then, like, the movement teacher was like, yeah, you, t- so you're going to have to just wear your tights and we're going to film you walking in and looking at your your physique and your body and how you move. And I remember going, oh, my God, I, I'm from Darwin. I don't even know what this stuff is. <laughs> and so I had to I had to ask my auntie, <laughs> Auntie Tony, I'm like, do you have a pair of black tights? And I remember doing... In this class in her black tights, which now I look back at it, I'm like, I love that I'm a real Darwin kid that's like um, <laughs> borrowing my auntie's tights because I didn't have my, my tap shoes and my support. What yeah, kind was... of relationship did you have with your auntie Tony? She was lovely, actually. And I they originally lived in Darwin and that's how we connected. And my uncle Mick is not, not actually a blood blood uncle, but is, is through marriage and through family and had worked with my mum and had a long relationship with my mum working at the Northern Land Council. And, and then obviously Uncle Mick moved to Sydney for his work and Auntie Tony moved there as well. And so, you know, we've had quite a 
quite a long relationship over the years. And even now, you know, I do see him around and he does call me son. And, um, you know, it's a really beautiful thing to have an, uh, an adopted father. Tell me about the, the first time that your auntie Tony took you to, to Oxford Street in Sydney. Yeah, so that was a, you know, that was an interesting time. I think dealing with my sexuality and growing up in Darwin, I never really understood. Um, I always knew I was different and I didn't know what that difference meant. And so I remember going through school and feeling really different. I didn't want to play sport. I was always really, you know, intrigued with the arts and being a part of the creative side of things. And so I always knew that there was something different with me, but I couldn't couldn't pinpoint it and also felt really isolated by that. And obviously that was me being a little queer kid. And obviously it was something that my auntie had recognised probably much before me. And so I remember she, she used to get a haircut done on Oxford Street and she's like, come with me, come to Oxford Street. I was like, sure, not knowing what Oxford Street was. And I, she's got, she's like, this is my, um, this one get my hair cut you just go out and um go and have a look around and you know go to some of the shops I was like sure okay and I remember like walk turning around the corner or whatever happened and I was just like oh my god this what what is this place what did you see well I just remember well I think it was just Oxford Street during the late 90s so it was thriving there were drag queens there were you know people from the trans community there were gay people, lesbians, um, you know, holding hands, kissing. And it was just, I remember just being, and I think the thing that stuck in my mind was the posters and seeing the visibility on the street of all this artwork and, and nightclub posters and two people kissing and of the same sex. And there was this really mixed emotion in me of, of feeling obviously really excited and happy, but also really not understanding it to a certain extent, but I think the biggest the biggest feeling was a feeling of being home and, and of going, oh, I actually feel like I belong. And, you know, for, for all those years that I felt out of place in Darwin, I really found a sense of who I was in that moment. And obviously being a student at NIDA, I tried to suppress my sexuality. And Why, why you know, obviously? I would have thought theatre school was a, a supportive place to be a queer kid. No, I think back then it was very much, and I, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, it has changed now, but for a big part of the 2000s, early 2000s, and definitely, you know, the late 90s, you you couldn't be queer and be on television and you or film like you know there weren't there weren't those those idols that you could look at or there wasn't anyone openly out at that time because if you if you were out and open you didn't get the work and so um, you had to really suppress that and, you know, come across as being butch and macho and um, being heterosexual. And, and you know, it, that was kind of easy for me in a, in, a, in a way because I wasn't out and because I was still grappling with my, you know, sexual identity and being gay. So to a certain extent it was easy because I could focus on being at NIDA and being an actor and studying and, and doing well at what I was doing. I didn't have to worry about being gay, but I know that I did get you know, it was hard when we were doing kind of romance and love scenes and and things like that. And also I was a virgin. So, um, you know, so it was like... You're doing a lot of performance. A lot of performance. <laughs> so I think I won the award for the Best Actor Award. Um, but after leaving NIDA and coming to terms with my sexuality and really owning it, like it, I kind of look back on those times and I, I'm glad that we now have an opportunity for younger queer people that are in performing arts to be able to be authentic and to be themselves because we do have people out there there now that are really owning it and that are really, you know, living their true authenticity. Do you remember the first time you ever saw a drag performance? Yeah, I think it was in, in Sydney as well and it was at, um, you know, at Oxford Street and as I mentioned back then there was a real thriving culture of 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 our community and, you know, of queerness and every single bar was queer and every single shop and nightclub and, yeah, I remember going to ARC. Oh, actually, ARC and Albury, they were the two places um, and also Midnight Shift where I used to go and watch the shows and Annie's Bar and I remember definitely back then there was like Chelsea Bunn, 
Porsche Turbo. These are different performers, um, are they? Chelsea different performers, Bunn and, yeah. yeah. Chelsea Bunn, Porsche Turbo. Um, Vanity Fair was just starting back then. And then there was a, a Māori drag queen called Testicle, who's <laughs> um, <laughs> got such a great name. And I remember she was a part, there was this like this, they used to do like there was a group of three of them that used to do the shows. And she was a part of that that group, and I always used to be mesmerised watching Tess perform, and um, because she was also completely different to the rest of them, she was not a bitchy drag queen. She was really polite. She was quite reserved, but gorgeous, like an absolute like gorgeous drag queen. And um, her movements, I used to love her movements. And so yeah, and then we eventually became friends many years so, later. And so, did you love drag straight away, Ben? No, oh God, no. I um. I used to be really scared of it, actually. And I think it's so funny because when I do drag now and people say, you know, we were scared of you, but now we're not. And I never understood what they meant. But I remember being, you know, absolutely afraid of going to the shows because they'd pick on people and they'd also make fun of people and... So I was always so afraid that they were going to make make fun of me. And Were you scared that they'd see something in you that you didn't want to own up to? Definitely. I definitely feel because because of that um, many years of hiding my identity and, you know, my sexual identity, you know, pretending to be straight, I didn't want them to kind of pick me out or make fun of that. And um, looking back on it now, like I, there was a part of me as well that really, as as someone that was in the closet, really like despised about drag as well. And I was always like, you know, why do you have to be like that? Why are you wearing that? And why, you know, be a man or like, you don't have to be so girly and you don't have to be so. And then, you know, once you kind of, you live a little and you grow up and you mature, you realise that, you know, drag queens and, and people like that in our community are really the bravest people out there because they are, they are, they are putting themselves on their line and they are living their truth selves and they are they are they are being themselves and they're doing it unashamedly and i think that you know now when i look back on it i that's something that really is, inspires me is remembering those times when i actually because that was my problem you know that was my problem thinking that that they didn't think that that was me having issues with my own sexuality and putting it onto them they were loving it and they were enjoying themselves. And it's funny now doing drag and how people kind of say, you know, good on you, good on you for what you're doing. And, you know, you must be, you know, you must find it hard or you must, you know, I mean, I'm just, it's weird. I'm just like, what are you talking about? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, I've got no problems with it. I love it. You know, <laughs> it's people portray their problem, you know, what, what they feel on it. And I'm like, yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got no problems, mate. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy over yeah, I'm here. happy. Yeah. <laughs> was, I'm happy. There, was there anyone else from Darwin on the scene back then? Definitely. So, yeah, particularly in those early days, Catherine Gorge, who... That is another um, brilliant name, I have to say, great? for a drag yeah, Catherine, queen from the NT, yeah, Catherine that's Gorge. That's right, Catherine Gorge. <laughs> and she was my drag mum, actually. So she taught me the foundations what of being a mean? drag what, queen. What's a drag mum? So a drag mum, um, and this is something like really back in the day, which was a part of drag culture, is you had a drag mum. And basically your drag mum took them under your wings and they were the ones who taught you everything about drag. Obviously now you can um, go onto YouTube and you can Google and you can watch RuPaul and learn everything you need to know. But back then, you know, in the good old days before we had um, internet... Before electric light and and moving vehicles. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, in monochrome. Um, But no, we, you know, so you had to be taught it because you could... You couldn't go to, there were no books, there was no YouTube, there was nowhere to learn. So someone had to teach you, and how did you um, all the tricks how and the did you come to, to that agreement? Did you ask her or did she offer? What was the oh process? Oh, God. What, yeah, what is that process? I mean, sometimes you approach someone and you go, you know, look, uh, you've got potential and I'd love, I'd love to teach you how to do drag. Or um, you can claim people. It's very rare that it goes the other way that people can claim you as their drag mum. But it has happened. Tyra Banks town has claimed me as her um, drag mother and I love that she's my you know she's my adopted daughter um, but I think it was just something that we kind we Catherine knew that I love performing we were friends we grew up on the same street and she was like okay well I'm going to teach you everything you need to and she became my unofficial drag mum and, and what, um, what do you remember her teaching you what were those early Jeff- lessons in 
Yeah, definitely the makeup. So um, it was all about the illusion of the eyes. And so the eyebrows, blocking out your eyebrows, um, doing your new eyebrows. Um, so your new eyebrows your, higher up on your, your forehead. Yeah, higher up. Yep. And, and really that illusion of your cheekbones and the correct places to highlight. And also the most important rule of tucking. So, you know, my drag mum taught me how to do that as well and how to how to get my womanly figure. And with the way that, that she taught you, Ben, would that have been different from the way other drags mums were teaching their <sighs> drag babies? Like, could you tell that, all right, this person's been taught by, by this drag queen? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think generally everyone kind of learns those things is the is the makeup, the eyes, the foundations of tucking and, and what to wear and how to wear it and all that illusion. But definitely you, you belong to a tribe. And so um, this is something that I, you know, that I really found I find fascinating about Drake. And not so much nowadays because we do have the YouTubes and we do have, you know, you can learn yourself by watching TV and all those things. But back then you your drag mum taught you how to do your makeup, which was a signature way of doing makeup. And so people on the strip knew who your drag mum was, was because of your makeup. And to a certain certain extent, you know, you could have a look at, like I mentioned, Vanity Fair and Vanity Fair taught Courtney Act. And so they have very similar ways that they do stuff in their makeup. And so um, even now, all these years later, you can still tell who was a part of your clique or who taught you your makeup. <laughs> so fascinating. Um, so was there rivalry fascinating. between? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. So you'd go out sometimes and, you know, no, you wouldn't talk to that lot because they were taught by them, and that's their <laughs> that's that's their tribe and their you know their clan. So um, yeah, you wouldn't talk to them, and then other people you'd be like, oh yeah, that's you know. That's a that's that's their crew, so you could talk to them, and and also it was a performance thing. So you you learnt your choreography from your group as well, and so it was this whole big kind of. Mm. I'm thinking about it now. It's a bit like um, West Side Story, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds like but it. I can see the <laughs> high heels. How did yes. your creation, Miscellaneous, come about? Yeah, well, that's. I mean. It, it, it was born out of the um, incredible inspiration f- from my um, experience as an actor and loving loving being an actor and loving doing characters. Like at NIDA, I love doing character work and playing different characters. And then obviously being queer and, and loving that drag scene and being, you know, a part of Oxford Street and all that incredible time back in the early 2000s. And, yeah, it was just like I feel like this is something that is combining the two things that I really love. Let's give it a go. And and Um, what kind of character is she? What's what's her uh, persona? Yeah, so Miscellaneous is very much inspired by Tess and so, you know, I, I, I... made a little promise to myself that when I did create Miscellaneous that I was going to be a nice drag queen and that I was going to be very generous. And, um, and you know, for me doing drag, it's a huge honour because I'm representing the female form and the matriarchs in my family play such an important role. And, you know, I love all the females in my life. So every time I do it, it's about respecting women and, 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 and females and um, ensuring that that I, you know, it's a privilege for me to be able to do that. So so I want to do it in a way that's really respectful. So miscellaneous is always, you know, comes out of a place of respect for women in the female form. But also she's, you know, she's, she can be sassy when she needs to and she can also give it back when she needs to. And I think that's something about it, you know, that you learn with drag. You have a quick wit and you have a quick tongue because there's a lot of hecklers out there and you need to be able to come back really quickly. And so, you know, you, you learn that very early on. And so, you know, she can give it back. But Generally, you know, she's a she's a very fun loving character that is all about entertaining and and ensuring that people have a good time. Tell me about the very first night that you transformed yourself into miscellaneous. What was that like? <laughs> well, it was my twenty fifth birthday, and it was I was living in Glebe in Sydney, and I remember I was like, okay, this I had a whole big big birthday. I was like, it's my twenty fifth. I'm having a big party, and I was like, okay, so I'm, I think I'm going to do drag. And so I remember speaking to a couple of my friends, Jill and Pauline and a- Adrian, who Adrian was a part of the scene and so he kind of knew some tips and Pauline had done some, you know, drag makeup before and other people. So, you know, we pulled it all together. I think I was borrowing someone's wig. I borrowed someone's wig, borrowed someone's dress. Everything was borrowed <laughs> because I didn't own anything, um, including makeup. And um, I remember 
you know, feel, I remember feeling so glamorous, but I would have looked horrendous. I would have looked terrible because you're always terrible. When you first do drag, you're always terrible, but it's the experience of transforming and being this incredible character. And I remember everyone just loved it. And particularly with, um, you know, black fellows in our community, like they love having a laugh and they love like, you know, entertainment. And, and so I remember doing my Whitney song and, um, <laughs> coming, coming out in the, into the lounge room and doing, <laughs> doing, doing Whitney. And yeah, it was just such a, you know, it was just such a great memory. And, you know, I think from then it was like, yeah, I love this and I would love to be able to pursue it. And what about the name, Ben? Where did that stroke <laughs> of genius come from? <laughs> So I'm really amazed that there actually hasn't been any other miscellaneouses, which is great trademark. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was when I, so so obviously I, it came later on when I obviously did drag, but my first job was a checkout um, assistant at Coles Casuarina here in Darwin when I was 15. And back then it was when the scanners first came in and um I remember there was all these like issues, like like a lot of things weren't programmed or they wouldn't scan. And we used to have this folder that had all of the, it was like <laughs> 20 pages long that had all of the code. So if like if a bread didn't scan, you had to go through the bread page and you had to find the specific loaf it was and you had to type in a six digit number. And so you can imagine if that was happening every five items, you just got over it. So I remember I remember um, memorising the miscellaneous code. <laughs> and so everything that wouldn't scan was just miscellaneous, like 65423. And it was just like <laughs> saved so much time. And so, and then I remembered that. I remember, oh, miscellaneous. That's such an interesting... What a glamorous actually, origin story for you. The Coles in Darwin. Coles in Darwin. But I always wanted to have missed something. I wanted my name to be Miss something. So, the, so there was like Miss Opportunity, you know, Mystique. There were a lot of other misses. And I remember thinking back and going, miscellaneous. And I remember back to Coles. I was like, oh my God, that's, it's so great. So yeah, that's where she was born. How differently do people respond to you when you're in drag? Oh, pretty, um, it's pretty crazy actually. And when you first start doing it, the, I mean, the longer you do it, the less you kind of notice it. But when you first do it, you really, it's this, it's, it's this weird sense of that you're in a mask, but also you're in this mask made of shimmery gold. So there's this really interesting look of, <laughs> wow, what, that you, that's amazing, but also what is that? And also there can be a form of like, oh, a bit like, oh, what's, that's not right. Or So it's this really fascinating response that you get from people. And because you're just you, you there's no difference, but to other people and even people you know, like, um, you know, I know my family, some of my family members didn't even know that miscellaneous was me until like three months later. And, and so you, so it's just really, it's great if you want to like, you know, rob a bank or something because no one will ever know it's you. So it's like, you can get away with, you can get away with so much. And it was also a really great social experiment I used to, I used to love to do because I, I could watch people that didn't know it was me and their behaviour how they would act with miscellaneous as opposed to Ben was fascinating. Well, does and it up your sex appeal? Are different people hitting on you when I'll you're miscellaneous? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, definitely. And back then, you know, like in, in those days, you, you play on that as well. And it was, it's exciting because you have really, you know, hot guys looking at you in a way that they wouldn't look at Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Girls looking at you in different ways. And so, yeah, you really play on it and you really, you know, you, you relish in that. But, the, you know, the, the longer you do it, it's like, oh, I just want to get home now and take my stockings off and <laughs> take these eyelashes off. <laughs> but but in the early days, you you know, you really plan and you party and you stay out and all hours of the night. Um, but, yeah, really, like, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Tell me about the Miss First Nations pageant that you started a few years ago. It really was born out of the need to have more visibility and more opportunities for First Nation drag artists in this country. And so Miss First Nation is a basically a drag pageant um, similar to RuPaul, very different to RuPaul, but similar in the sense that it's a it's a drag pageant. And so we have various different heats. It goes over a week and we crown a winner at the end of it. Who and, are some um, of the performers who've really stood out? 
happened for you in that? Oh, gosh, there's so many. And, you know, we, we started in 2017 and we've now crowned our fourth winner um, this year, which is Cerulean. But I'm, I'm, I don't want to say any because they're going to be listening and they're going to be saying, you didn't mention me. But um, some of the winners include, I might say the winners include Josie Baker, um, Lacey Dunneman, Chocolate Box, and uh, as I mentioned this year, Cerulean. But, but you know, it's, it's incredible because that first year in 2017, we didn't know who was going to be a part of it or if anyone was going to be a part of it. Um, and to see it grow now, to be a part of Boy Festival in midsummer in Melbourne, attracting over 2,000 people at that event. You know, we had Courtney Act as one of our judges on the final night. To see it grow so much and to see... What we originally wanted to achieve is that visibility and opportunity for First Nation drag artists. And to see that happen, you know, makes me so proud and, and, and just, you know, I just want to keep growing it and, and keep giving our mob opportunities. Do the performers approach drag in a different way than white drag queens? Oh, absolutely. I think, I definitely think there's there's much more of a of a sense of community, but also much more, uh, you know, because, you know, music, song, storytelling, dance is in our DNA as First Nations people. And so, and as I mentioned before, we're entertainers. Like, you know, we've always, we've been entertainers for 80,000 years. So, you know, we love getting up there and putting on a show. But but I think the great thing about First Nation artists and performers is that there's an understanding that we're all we're all in it together and obviously yes there's going to be issues it's drag and there's going to be you know problems here and there but I think generally we're we're all doing it for the same cause we're all doing it to further our movement as as black queer people in this country for our visibility and and for equality really Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. up in Darwin. Tell me about your family. Um, I was born in Darwin, um, here on beautiful Larrakia country, and my grandparents and my grandmother was from Iwaja, which is in Coburg and in Arnhem Land here in the Northern Territory, and my grandfather was from, uh, is from Malak Malak, which is Daly River, which is in Northern Territory as well, and then my great-grandmother was born on Badu Island on the Torres Strait, so we've had such a, such a beautifully mixed culture of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture but born and raised in Darwin. And so, you know, my growing up was always here in Darwin. We'd go camping out to Daly River. Um, what do you remember about that? What was that like? Lots of crocodiles. So, because, <laughs> yeah, Daly River is, is crocodile infested and it's freshwater, saltwater. So you have these incredible, incredible fishing there, but also... Yeah, it's crocodile infested. And so how, how do you keep away from them? What's the tip? You just you sleep you sleep really high up on the <laughs> banks. <laughs> but when you go down to the dinghy in the morning, like I remember going down once with my dad and there was a huge big crocodile that was longer than the length of a dinghy. And you know, you, you go down at night and you shine a torch on the water and all you see is red eyes. Like there's oh. there's heaps of red eyes. And you know, you'd go fishing and you just make sure that you're you know, you always <laughs> you always got your eye on and it's all it's also murky water. So it's not clear water. So God, Oxford Street the, the, must have seemed very safe in comparison to, <laughs> <laughs> to well, the Daly well, River. <laughs> depends who you ask, really. <laughs> but no, yeah, definitely, yeah. And but I've grown up with crocodiles here up in Darwin, and I think a lot of people up from Darwin are, are crocwise. We're taught if we are being chased by crocodiles to run in a zigzag because they um, it takes them longer to for their tails to turn. But you know what? I don't want to be able to test that theory out. So <laughs> I'm just going to. Agree that it's true. <laughs> How had your mum and dad met one another? What's their story? 
How do you know? The funny thing was, Dad. The, I, w- I went around there the other day, and Dad pulled out a photo of him and of him and Mum, and I asked, "How old were you back then?" Like, because they were g- together, and he said that they were eighteen. So that they're obviously like teenage sweethearts that are still together all these years. And Dad turned seventy this year, so. I think it's so cute that they're still together all these years. Did they come from similar worlds? Definitely not. No, mum mum was from a big family and they used to live in Parap and uh, mum's one of nine and then her cousins, her, so my, like, uncles and aunties have huge families as well and then our extended family, so our second cousins, third cousins, like, so, you know, it's a proper black family. We have a huge family up here. Couldn't be more different, Dad, coming from a German, Irish, English family and my mum from this Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander family and these, you know, two worlds colliding, I think, is is really amazing. Was there a lot of music around in that big family of yours, Ben, when you were growing up? Definitely, especially from my mum's family. If What I do remember from that time was being in my nana's house back then and my nana and pop's house and at that house in Parap, there, um, 8 Edward Street, there was a big mango tree at the back and that's where they all used to, all our uncle and aunties used to go out there and my nana and pop used to go out there and they used to sing and dance and, and used to play the guitar and and I remember them, you know, putting frangipanis in their hair and doing, you know, pearly shells and, and doing all those incredible dances and just being a kid sitting down and watching them and, you know, I'm really, I'm really grateful that I have that memory because that inspires me to keep doing what I do and connects me to my culture. So you were around this performance and and music. Were you a natural performer yourself as a kid? My parents used to love dress-up parties, so it seemed that every party they used to do, they used to do dress-ups. And I remember my mum's 30th and it was a dress-up party once again. And But a lot of the men used to dress as girls. Like, well, you know, you just used to dress up as Sandy from Greece or whatever it was, and it was this hilarious time. But uh, a, a specific memory was on the... My da- my mum and dad had an incredible record collection and one of the songs was Space Invaders. And I must actually try and find it, who it is, and um, like Space Invaders. Invaders, space invaders. And I remember they used to make me do this kind of robot dance to it. But also back then it was like, you know, milkshake by the village people. And yeah, but then, and then doing school concerts. I was always, I was in love doing the school concerts and being a part of them too. So were you one of those kids who, who had a lot of confidence on stage and off or were you shy when you weren't there with the spotlight on you? Oh, no, I was very shy. So it was funny. I was, it was, yeah, definitely once I got up on stage, it was like this switch changed and I became this really confident person. But then I was always really introverted, which is really funny. And I think even now I'm, for a lot of people that know me, when I'm actually not working or around people, I am quite an introverted person. But when I am working or when I am socialising or out in big groups, I'm definitely on. But I do remember in school, I think also because of that thing of being, you know, bit different being that little queer kid. I just like to keep to myself. I didn't like to to get noticed. It was a bit difficult because I used to get teased a lot because I was very androgynous and people would always say, you were a girl or you're a boy. And then because I didn't really know, but you know, I, I was in this place of I don't know. So I'd just kind of say, oh, you know, whatever, you make it up. And so then going through puberty, you know, when you go through puberty, I don't think it's fun for anyone. But generally, I did have a good time because I was able to be a part of the drama class. And I think that's when I really started to be inspired by performance and being an actor and and finding my tribe at school because there were other people that were really interested in it as well. How did the choreographer Michael Leslie come to have an influence on what happened with you after school? Yeah, so Michael Leslie formed a school in Perth, which was a bit of a bridging school for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids that could go there and learn the art of being in theatre and musical theatre and dance skills, acting skills, voice skills. And so I was just fortunate that the year that I finished school, he was doing auditions in Darwin for the for the for the course in Perth. And I remember doing the audition and um, waiting a couple of days to find out if I got in and then and then got in and um yeah that was kind of my, like I'm smiling so much now thinking about it because I'm just like 
it was a really important moment because it felt like I'd, I'd achieved something really massive, but also that it was something that I was so passionate about. And it was also my ticket out of Darwin, out of a place that I didn't feel really comfortable at. And I felt that I was achieving something. I also met a whole lot of other blackfellas from around the country that, that I wouldn't normally have the opportunity to connect with. And, and that also really inspired me to be proud of my culture and who I am. One of the performing events you got involved in after you moved to Sydney was the Olympics. Tell me, what was your, what was your role there and what was it like? So I'd finished NIDA and so, you know, looking for acting jobs, going for auditions, doing all that hoo-ha and obviously going, how am I going to pay for my next meal? How am I going to pay for rent? And so I think it was something that just came up that Rhoda Roberts and Stephen Page were in charge of creating the awakening section for the Olympic ceremony, which basically was a seven-minute welcome to country introduction into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. Um, seven minutes, let's go. <laughs> seven minutes, that's right, to try and sum it up in seven minutes. And so, um, you know, they were obviously looking for people to be a part of that and to, you know, help look after all the artists and, and help with that. And so that seven-minute section brought in over a 1,000 different mobs from around the country, Aboriginal and Torres Strait people from around the country to be a part of that. And, and our role was assisting Stephen and Rhoda to um, look after all of those performers and community members, but also run that seven-minute component on the night. Was it a stressful time, Ben? Or what? It, when you think back on it, what was the emotion of, of being involved in such a huge undertaking? Oh, absolutely. It was, I mean, I think generally the vibe around Sydney, there was this a real electric energy around this around the city. So you wanted to be a part of it in whatever way you could. And so just to be a part of it, you felt this sense of pride and and wanting to show the rest of the world who we are and how how incredible our our country is, but also our community is and how our First Nations community. And so there was this real sense of pride, but also a sense of we've got a really big job ahead of us and to be able to rehearse all of these different components but also house all of these different people, you know, 500 women from the central desert that have the first time coming to Sydney, let alone being a part of the opening ceremony of the Olympics, like, you know, this whole cultural uh, exchange between you know, mobs living in Sydney with mobs that are coming from the Torres Straits, mobs that are coming from the Central Desert. So we had to really navigate that space but also run a major event, you know, <laughs> be a part of a major event. So, yeah, it was this really electric time. I bet there were some good after parties. Oh, yeah. Well, I was lucky enough as well to be a part of the closing ceremonies and Stephen asked me to dance with Bangara and his dances for the closing ceremony with Christine Anu for My Island Home. So that's still one of the highlights. And, um, yeah, that was one hell of a party. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that you do up in, up in Darwin now, Ben, is run airline theme parties with another drag queen. Now, how do these parties draw on your own professional experiences? Well, yes. Not long after, actually, the Sydney Olympics, I was kind of like once again looking for work as an independent actor and artist. And then the job came up for Qantas flight attendants. And um, back then it was looking for casual flight attendants. And I was like, oh, that's always something that I've wanted to explore and do. And it seems quite glamorous. So I remember going for the job and not really knowing anything about the industry or airline industry. And But when I got there, I realised how much of a competition mm. it was to get in. And so that really kind of pricked my interest and kind of the competitor in me was like, okay, I've got, I got to into really NIDA. get this. Now I want to get into Got into NIDA. <laughs> exactly. I want to get into Qantas. There's competition. I'm like, okay, this is, I've got to get into this. And so it actually was like NIDA in the sense that you have three interviews. You, it's over three days. It's quite a rigorous process. You do all these different elements. You do a group element and then you get culled and then you've got to come back. And so in a way, it was very similar to my NIDA audition. So I was used to I was used to that kind of interview, and going through the process, I was like, yeah, I actually want to be a part of this, and it's it actually really excited me to be a part of the airline industry. Well, you made it through, and 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 you got that job. What was wearing mm. the uniform like? Was that its own kind of drag and its own way? 
A little bit. Back when we first started, we had this revolting <laughs> double-breasted gold button. You know, it was a very 80s, 90s design. But, yeah, you, you did. I did love because you got all these elements. You got a vest and you got pants and you got <laughs> a jacket and you got a hat. We had hats and bags. And so they kitted you out with all of this stuff that you wear at different times. So when you do, you're doing a service, you put your vest on. And so it is like a bit of a costume. And But I must say thank Thankfully, not long after that, I got in, we did change to a new uniform that was definitely much nicer. But yeah, <laughs> the whole thing is like performance, doing the safety demo, you know, having to act on board. It's funny now I look back on it because it actually, there's a lot of correlation between performance, drag and flying. You, you say that you thought it would be this glamorous world, was it? For two minutes. I think you, you know, you very quickly learn that it's not as glamorous as you think it is. Cleaning vomit up from a seat or cleaning vomit up from a bathroom, dealing with drunk, like it's definitely not glamorous. But the thing that I love about it is there still is this idea back from when flying first started that it it was very much about glamour. Mm. And I love that there's certain elements that have still carried on, particularly around the uniform, around the fashion, around hair. And it's great to romanticise about how (laughs) glamorous it is, but definitely not. (laughs) How would you handle tough passengers? Because you must see some pretty feral behaviour. Yeah, definitely. And I was was fortunate to be a part of um, a group of flight attendants that went over and and started the London base in London, the Qantas London base. And so we used to do those really big sectors from London to Singapore to Hong Kong, basically Asia flights. And so they they could be up to 14 hours. And every flight that we did, there was definitely at least one uh, medical emergency that we had to we had to deal with because it was such a long sector. But, you know, sleeping tablets and alcohol do not mix everyone. And I don't know how many times we need to tell people, but, you know, you would have people getting really violent, actually. And, you know, I had one guy on one sector kind of grab my throat and get quite physical with me and we had to restrain him. But within, you know, half an hour, he had gone to sleep because he'd taken his sleeping tablet, but he'd been drinking as well. And the funny thing was is that when they when they wake up, obviously they are completely embarrassed by what has gone on because you remind them. And nine times out of ten, they're met by airline security, either in Bangkok or Singapore or, or those countries that you don't want to be meeting any of their police or their security once you get off in those countries. So they learn very quickly not to do it again. Flying in um, economies a very different experience from What's flying economy? in first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, which section of the plane did you did you usually work in, Ben? Is that my answer? Well, I, well when I first started, because I started being a domestic flight attendant, obviously I did um, majority economy and I used to also work in um, business class. And then when I did went over to the London base, I became a, a business and first class flight attendant and then I became a business and first class trainer. So I was very lucky that I never went past that curtain in economy <laughs> and um, I stayed We live up in, in different business. worlds, Ben, different, <laughs> different worlds. Uh, different worlds, I know. And so um, I normally had to fly in economy when I was a passenger, <laughs> but working, I um, stayed up in first class in business, which was well, very grateful for. Apart from passengers, were there ever any dangerous moments in, in terms of flying, given all that, those hours that you logged? The biggest thing about being a flight attendant as well is is your um, responsibility around safety and the safety training to be a flight attendant is really, you know, you have to train really hard. It's really long and thankfully it's one of the things that you very rarely have to enact but it is there because of if there are moments when you do have to and I know that um, I was on one particular flight that we were travelling from London once again to Singapore and there was a a smell of uh, electrical smell actually and I remember that it was like this really it smelled like electrical fire and that's one of the scariest things on board is because a majority of an airline the electrics are internal and you can't see where the electrics are so I remember smelling it I rang the captain I think the first officer came down and could kind of smell it as well and our flights were over overnight so we left 
London late at night. So most people are sleeping. So thankfully I was just up in the first class galley and then it was kind of okay. And then there a fl- there was a flame that came out of the some of the um, electrical lighting. Oh my and goodness. so I, yes, I got the BCF out, the fire extinguisher and put that out. And then that was okay. And then I think, I think then the captain came down and kind of assessed it and not long after that, another alarm went off and then we diverted, I think, somewhere in India. And so, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty scary moment. And I, I remember the most scary moment was actually the moment from when we were told we were diverting to make an emergency landing in India. I'm getting all emotional talking about it, actually, but that, that moment of... Um, preparing for an emergency and preparing to land um, because because the scary thing is, is an electrical fire, you don't know where that is on board. So I just remember being really alert and really scared that at any moment, so once we landed, God, I've come and I'm getting so emotional by it, but once we landed, there was this sense of, oh, we've made it, um, we're okay and we're safe. So, mm. yeah, that was a moment that, for me, he, like, I will kind of never forget. And, and yeah. you would have had to be keeping calm for the passengers too. I mean, I guess there's that other oh, level God. for you as a steward. You're the face yeah, of yes. that safety. Yeah, once again, the acting coming into <gasps> into play. So, yeah, you had to you had to maintain that, that composure and you don't want to freak the passengers out and you don't want to stress them out. So... Mm. You know, people think that flight attendants are just waiters in the air, but but they do have a huge responsibilities. And really, when things go wrong, they they know what they need to do. You were living this glamorous life, really, despite the the vomit you're cleaning up of flying around <laughs> the world and living in London and and also performing. Had you come out to your parents by this stage? Did they know the truth of of the life you were living? Not really, no. So I remember living this glamorous life in the sense that I had a great job. I was living in the, one of the most incredible cities in the world, getting paid well. I couldn't complain really, but there, there's always this niggling thing of having to come out to your family and live your authentic truth. And I remember on ret- return back to Australia, coming out to my family. And I remember very, very early on in my time in, in Sydney, Australia, after one Mardi Gras being very swept up by all of the emotions and feeling very proud. I remember coming home after Mardi Gras and calling my mum. This is when I was 21, actually, calling my mum and telling her on the phone. You know, back then we had to dial up phone. You know, looking back on it now, I did it so bad. I was so bad how I did it. But it was the only way that I knew how I could do it at the moment. And my mum wasn't prepared and I didn't give her any kind of context. And and so I remember her just saying, you know, but you're okay now and... I was like, well, I am okay, but that's not... It was just this odd moment and I remember her telling... She said to me, just just don't tell your father. And I was like, okay, so... Okay, so don't tell my father. So I'd kind of, I'd kind of come out to my mum in this weird way that felt really awkward and... But also it made me re- retreat again because I wasn't able to then tell my father and... So I kind of held that for many years and it wasn't... It wasn't until I came back from London and was like, no, you know, I've... I'm 28 now. I'm. I've, I feel like it's. I'm. It's. It's a time for me to come out. I want to. I want to be, be honest to my family. And yeah, I remember coming back to Darwin a few times because I was still living in Sydney. And I'm like, th- when I go back to Darwin, I'm going to tell my dad. There were these couple of opportunities that I could have told him, but they just never sunk. And I remember one moment particularly. He was working on his houseboat. That was kind of his, you know, sanctuary. And I remember going out there and sitting there and I was just watching him and we were just there and quiet together and it was bubbling up me, ready to tell him. And I was about to tell him and then something happened. I think he asked me a question <laughs> and then it kind of, then I didn't ask him. I was like, oh, sh- the moment's gone now. And so then it didn't happen and then I got out of the boat and I was like, oh, damn it. And then I remember, then it was one time I just rang him. I was like, no, nah, I've got to, I've got to do it. And um, I remember being on the phone to him and saying, you know, dad, I'm gay and it's really hard for me to say this to you because my biggest fear is losing you as a father. And I think that's the, that's the scariest thing as a, as a, as a queer kid or someone coming out is the fear of losing your family or, or, the, or the people that are close to you or being rejected. And, you know, you don't, you don't want your father to 
reject you. So, you know, it was, it's, it's a really hard moment. And I remember my dad saying, you know, I love you, you know, that I don't really understand it, but you know, you know, I love you. And, and that was enough for me, you know, for him to say that. And now that I look back on it and, you know, it's, it's a, you know, really great moment that we shared, but I understood for the first time in our conversation of me coming out that his view of what a, a gay person has to endure in this world is something that's really frightening to him. All he knew was that, that gay people got bashed, died of AIDS and couldn't live a happy life. And so his fear was that his son, he didn't want his son growing up in, in a world that that's what he thought it was going to be. And that was a huge epiphany for me to understand that he he loved me, but in a way that he was protecting me. As he's seen the the happiness of the life you've built for yourself and your your friends and your success professionally, has that allayed some of those fears oh, he had? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I I talk to people about this moment and and having a responsibility in in my community to tell my story. And I say to people, people change whether it's 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 about it's about race, it's about sexual identity, gender identity. It's about being authentic through a lived experience. And my my dad has changed by me being my authentic self. He has learned from a lived experience and I think that it's really important and that's how I live my life is that the way that, we are, that we're going to make change or that we change people is by communicating, is by living side by side, is by people seeing that we're all the same really. And I guess that's the kind of shift you're hoping for with the Miss First Nations pageant and the, the audiences who see those performers. Oh, I just think that there's, you know, I mean, we've had such supportive audiences coming to our show and I think that in this country we're ready for a, we're ready for a new story. We're ready for a new chapter, you know, this new narrative. I think that, that our country's craving for that. It's craving for people that haven't had the opportunity to have opportunities now, for people that have privilege to kind of step aside and give other people an opportunity. And I think that the real history of this country and our stories now need to be told. And I think that the general populace, I really believe this, of, our, of, of Australia are wanting that as well. And I think that through drag, we have an incredible opportunity to tell stories in a way that normally we, we don't do, or we can push boundaries in a way that other art forms can't. And we can get away with stuff, particularly that other art forms can't get away with. And so I think that that gives us an upper hand as drag artists. Ben, thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Oh, thank you so much. And this truly is one of my favourite shows and I am so honoured to be a part of it. That was my conversation with Ben Greats from 2021. And Ben is currently in Sydney as one of the World Pride Festival Creative Directors. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.